0: My title for you this morning is God's Standard for Public Justice. God's Standard for Public Justice, if you were paying attention last week, and I know each and every single person here was paying attention last week, I made a distinction between what I call private justice and public justice. Private justice being that interpersonal aspects of doing right and wrong between each other and public justice, which is a topic we're going to explore further this morning. We have a bit of material to cover, so I want to get straight into it. I'm also trying to find some rhythm again in Deuteronomy. We're taking big chunks every single week, so I want to get right into Deuteronomy 17. But without doing any additional introducing, I want to share with you some points that I believe will wet the palate, if you will, for us when it comes to Deuteronomy 17 and this topic of public justice. Let me start by saying the following. You might want to write this down. Justice matters to God because God is just. Justice matters to God because God is just. I want to share with you a handful of verses that are going to come up on the screen here. The first is Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 says, A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Isaiah 30 verse 18 says, The Lord is a God of justice. I think you can get what is being asserted in these verses. And of course, there are a plethora of other verses that essentially says this, God is a God of justice. And God doesn't prescribe to his creation a feature that isn't a part of his own personality. In other words, the reason God has a standard of public justice is because he holds his creation to that which he himself is. He is just. As a result of this information, as a person who believes and loves Jesus, as a person who longs to be obedient to his word and fulfill his commandments, I am not a secularist. And neither should any Christian be a secularist. While I believe in the institutions of the state, I absolutely do not put them before God's word in the church. And neither should you. I do not believe that the state can fix anything of significance or save anyone. In fact, the state isn't in the salvation business. The church is. And similarly, the church isn't in the management business. The state is. And while these two entities are sometimes pitted against each other, I prefer to see the principles outlined for us in God's Word conveyed in our lives, reflected in the way we speak and act and decide. In present times, we must be able to articulate an energetic, socially sensitive vision of what we believe the Bible says should be. A Christian vision that is God-centered, gospel-centered, because the world is racing toward ruin under the pressures of selfishness and secularism. After all, what does it really mean if a man or woman says that they are a Christian, but they are only a Christian at 1045 on Sunday morning? God has a standard of you and of me, an expectation of you, and of me, and part of his expectation is that we represent in public ideas of justice. We see that this morning by way of three points in Deuteronomy 17. God's standard of public justice is seen, first of all, in this way justice must be uncompromising and definitive. Secondly, justice must be fair. And thirdly, Justice must be national. So let's begin with our first point this morning in Deuteronomy 17. Justice must be uncompromising and definitive. We see this in the first seven verses of Deuteronomy 17. Just to read these texts, these verses again, it says If there is found among you within your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them. Jumping down to verse 6, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Verse 7, The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. Now there's a number of things that I'd like you and I to see from this first point, namely that justice must be uncompromising and definitive. The first thing that I want you to see is this. The judges must be uncompromising. The judges who are enforcing this law must be uncompromising. The reason for this position is simple. Judges were to be executors of the law, enforcers of the law. They are to know it. They are to love it. They are to deal it out in a way that is uncompromising and definitive so that the public society was filled with a sense of justice, a sense of right and wrong, a sense of action and consequence. Does that sound like the world we're living in right now? I'm sure that the career path of judges was, like so many other career paths, have been in the past traditionally, once motivated by love, a sense of duty, a sense of interest in the career or the path itself. Judges used to go into law for love of the law, For civic duty for love of country and a handful of other things, but things have changed. Now we see so often judges occupy an interesting middle ground, a middle ground that is exploited by politicians. It's politicized so that politicians can use judges to get to the law and make adjustments to the law so that they can earn the votes of a certain constituency that they want to earn the votes from. Judges are being used for purposes other than that of the law. Judges are being used for influence and for votes. Here in Deuteronomy 17, the law and the judges who are to oversee its unfolding are supposed to be uncompromising and definitive. Judges are to assess what's happening, which in this case is people worshiping foreign gods within the covenant that has been established between them and God. Now today we have what we call freedom of religion. In the United States of America, if you don't want to go to church, you don't have to. In the United States of America, if you prefer to go to a kingdom hall, or to a mosque, or to a temple, you have that right and privilege under the Constitution. But this is not the United States we're talking about. This is Israel. This is a singular group of people who has been redeemed, who has been covenanted with God, and with that redemption and with that covenant, with that provision and with that grace, comes an expectation on the part of God that his people are faithful to him that they do not worship other gods, that they do not pursue through the means of foreign gods and foreign religions anything else that God himself has promised to provide. You say it another way. God does not allow for adultery in a relationship with him. You cannot cheat on God and get away with it. We must be faithful to God. Amen? This might seem like an extreme thing for us. We certainly would not approve of anyone killing someone as they come out of a mosque or out of a temple. But this is not that. We are not Israel, and Israel is not us. So we have to understand the commands that are being given in the context in which they are being given, but the principles can still be learned. When it comes to God's law, the judges were to be uncompromising and definitive. But not only were they to be uncompromising and definitive, they were to enforce the law on the witness of two. Or three people. They were not to enforce it on the witness of one. Why? Well, because someone might have a grudge against someone, a personal vendetta, and bring one argument. Or maybe a judge is crooked and he's accepted a bribe from somebody who is the singular witness of someone's supposed crime. And and at the end of the day, we would have a twisting and a perversion of justice. And so God says two things that act as guardrails for indictments. Number one, there must be two or three witnesses. And number two, when it comes to the capital punishment of the person who allegedly committed the crime, the first couple of people who throw stones are the ones who brought the indictment. You're going to speak up. You're going to act up. If you think you're going to make a complaint and then when it comes time for justice to be done, you're going to go on vacation, you've got another thing coming. God is saying to his people, everyone will be held accountable for the part that they play in the community. So you can't just bring an indictment because you know that if you bring an indictment and that indictment is approved and acknowledged and judgment is made, and the capital punishment is to follow, you've got to be the first one to throw the stones. But not only are you the first one to throw the stones, look back at the text again, verse 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of what witness? Look at verse 7. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. We've, We've seen that so far. And afterward, the hand of... All the people. Friends, justice is a community engagement. Justice is a community activity. Everyone must participate in this idea of justice. Second thing that I want you to note is that it's definitive. And as you can probably see from the idea of capital punishment being conveyed in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there's no question about how this is supposed to be definite. They are to refuse leniency toward those who are obviously guilty of premeditated crimes. And now we're all sinners, amen? Scriptures say that we're all sinners. Scripture says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But we're not talking about general sin here. We're talking about a premeditated sin of the most severe sort. We're talking about regular, habitual sins, attitudes toward criminality and lawlessness that God does not make allowance for in this particular case of false religion. You don't have to look far to see what happens to countries that forsake the gospel of Jesus Christ, compromise biblical principles, and allow other religions to take root in their society, unchallenged and unchecked. For example, a recent poll discovered that Muhammad is the third most popular name for boys in England. And England The third most popular name for boys is Muhammad. In the city of Galway, Ireland, that's in Ireland, the most popular boy's name is Muhammad. You see, what's taking place, friends, is is, is it used to be a war between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Now it's a war between Jesus Christ and Allah. For Israel, God built in a guard, and that guard was this. In my country, you will not worship another god. And not only will you not worship another god, but the encouragement to worship other gods will be met with capital punishment. This is why the scripture says what it says in verses 6 and 7. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death by one witness or the evidence of one witness. This is a serious indictment. Now, you and I are raised in a wonderful country, and we are taught, some of us, by our own parents when we grow up, listen, whatever you do is fine unless you believe sincerely and with all your heart. But you can sincerely believe that you can fly and jump off a cliff, and it's not going to happen. There are plenty of people who are sincere in in their beliefs, and they are sincerely wrong. So how do you and I as Christians living... In our country today, which affords freedoms to its citizens, live a life that represents both gospel-centered principles on justice and the liberty of everyone to make whatever decision that they want. Well, one way that we do that is by understanding that when it comes to the principles of justice in the Bible, we must be uncompromising and definitive. we have a responsibility of justice a responsibility of justice secondly justice must be fair it, it it is not only to be uncompromising and definitive we're not to have a sort of wishy-washy situation when it comes to conversations between right and wrong good and bad, we are also to be fair. This is found in verses 8 through 13. Look at the text again, if you would, please, for our second point, that justice must be fair. It says, if any case arises requiring decisions between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, one kind of assault and another, Any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose, and you shall come to the political priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Interestingly enough, we see as we continue to read this passage that once someone consults the priest and the judge and has handed down to them after consultation a decision, they have to go by that decision. They can't go another route because then they place themselves under an indictment for capital punishment. God takes justice very seriously. First, I'd like you to note the decision regarding social justice includes two different but equal parties. The first is the judge who holds a social office, and the second is the priest who holds a religious office. These two things weren't dislocated in ancient times like they are in modern times. They were supposed to work together in tandem and keep the society clean from evil and violence by working together toward God's ideal of justice. And it guarantees fairness. Early in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 19, it says, "'You shall not show partiality, "'and you shall not accept a bribe, "'because a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise.'" and subverts the cause of the righteous. To begin, first, I don't want to assume anything. And secondly, I know that our world is continually redefining terms and words. So let me give to you a textbook definition of the word fair. Ready? Here's a textbook definition of the word fair. Adjective impartial and just without favoritism or discrimination if you turn on the news or read a couple articles you already know that our justice system is not fair second definition quote marked by impartiality and honesty Now, I don't know if fair is what you see happening in so many circles today, but from a biblical perspective, I can tell you what I see. We're lacking fairness today. I don't see fairness. I see political expediency. I see preference. It is unfair to take from those who have to give to those who have not It is unfair to take those who have worked hard to achieve what they have achieved to give to those who have not worked hard so that they could have a taste of what has been achieved by those who have worked hard to achieve it. There's an assumption that the intolerant behavior in our society will always be tolerated. And this is unfair, and this is unjust. Let me allude to another verse in Deuteronomy, one which we've already covered. This is in the first chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17 says, You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone because the judgment is God's. So interesting how often we can read the word of God, in this case, the book of Deuteronomy, which is thousands and thousands of years old, and go, wow, that is exactly what we're dealing with today. How is it? That, well, let's just say for argument's sake, a couple of years ago, no one could leave their house, especially not with that piece of paper on their face, but riots were okay because people are upset. And we don't criminalize criminals because, because that's wrong, feelings can be hurt, and you might, you might be unequal in your distribution of this idea of justice. But if you have church when you're not supposed to, you can get in trouble. We have people still dealing with cases with that right now. And it's coming back, by the way. Get ready. The closer we get to election, the less you'll see your president. The more you'll hear about COVID and the more you'll hear about the necessity of putting the mask back on. First Baptist Church of Coleridge is not stopping. We will not do that again. Absolutely not. Whatever you decide to do will be your prerogative. Whatever you decide to do, you will have to live with. But the kingdom of the United States of America does not come before the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we will hold to that position unapologetically and firmly from this day forward. When we resumed worship after the pandemic, after we were restricted, we said never again. Well, we listen to the clowns in the suits who go to baseball games without a mask while telling everyone in the United States they can't go anywhere if they don't have a mask on. They can't see their family. They can't see their friends while people's parents, people's grandparents are dying alone in these God-forsaken places called old folks' homes because it wasn't their parents. It wasn't their family. Do you think that's just... If you think it is, I think you need to reassess your definition of justice. Am I saying be unsafe? Absolutely not. Am I saying throw caution to the wind? Of course not. What I'm saying is is listen to God before you do the government. The government does not care about you. The government will twist any law to get a vote. And if you are a law-abiding citizen paying their taxes... Living in a way that's conscientious toward the rest of your society, they don't even consider you. The reality of the matter is say amen if you're listening, we're not nearly as loud as we ought to be. It's exactly what's taking place here. We have been subverted in this country by a number of groups which exist in a minority status, percentage-wise, but who throw away the weight of a very significant portion of people when it comes to decisions. I don't know about you, but I feel like that's unfair. By definition, unfair. You shall not be partial in judgment. That's God's word to authorities, particularly judges. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. Well, that's exactly what's taking place around our country. If you won't listen to us, we'll burn down another city. In other words, church, when we read Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17, we're reading a word from God to those who are in power, who have been entrusted with influence and authority, with an expectation of fairness about what is right and wrong. With an expectation of what is right and wrong for everyone all the time, no matter who they are, where they are, what their title is. Fairness is is about holding to what is right always and forever. It's so important to God. But we're so prone to sin and cheat, especially for our own preferences and privileges, even for what we consider to be mercy or tolerance, because there's a lot of people who are saying, don't you think, and they're trying to be helpful and in reality, they're not being helpful at all, that God repeatedly reminds his people not to cheat, but to be fair and to be just. You know why God continually reminds us not to cheat, but to be fair and to be just? Because sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to hold justice. Sometimes it's hard to hold to the standards that God has called us to. To put it simply and understandably, in our context here, the punishment must fit the crime, and it doesn't matter who's doing it. The punishment must fit the crime. But another note that's worthy of mentioning here in this section is this. Note the secondary purpose of fair punishment. This is found in verse 13. The secondary purpose of punishment, namely, verse 13, all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. You see, God is giving us wisdom. God is giving us procedure. But we read his word and we go, you're so intolerant. But in reality, what he's doing is he's safeguarding three and four degrees farther than what we even anticipate. He's holding those in authority to accountability. He's holding those who would make a reference or referral to somebody being guilty to accountability. He's holding the community to accountability. And he's holding the effects of the execution of justice to accountability as well when it comes to people seeing and hearing what has been done. All the people will hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. You cannot mitigate the actions of criminals when their crimes aren't dealt with fairly. Let me say that again. You cannot mitigate the actions of criminals when the actions of criminals are not dealt with fairly. But what's more, you fail to discourage future criminals when you fail to deal with present criminals fairly. We are developing in our country an attitude of criminality. For example, what's happening in common around our country right now is shoplifting. Shoplifting has become a sport. In a variety of cities... In a variety of stores, in a variety of demographics, we see shoplifting happening like nobody's business. Thousands of dollars are being stolen, and security guards are not only watching it, they're holding the door open for these thieves. Our country has effectively encouraged theft and stealing and played down the importance of education, of family unity and strength, of mentorship, of hard work. You know why? They don't want you smart. They want you stupid. You know why they don't want to have somebody as a mentor over you, encouraging you, growing you, and mentoring Because they want you to be dependent upon them. If there's no fear of consequences, then actions cannot be and will not be managed. If there are no consequences, what difference does it make? And what are the consequences? Well, the consequences, as I see it, are quite clear. You and I, as honest citizens, who pay their taxes and live decent, godly, principled lives in society, will end up paying for the loss that these stores have incurred because they will have to compensate for the items that have been stolen and the insurance claims they're going to have to make, we're going to pay. The thieves don't pay. And because they are never punished, it just continues to happen. It would be better if our justice system was fair. It would be better if we punished criminals For the crimes that they committed, it would be better when we celebrated the righteous for doing what is right. But it's not only about uncompromising definitive justice, and it's not only about fair justice. Ultimately, in the last portion of this chapter, we learn that this is not to happen in pockets. This is to happen at a national level. There is to be an attitude of justice throughout the nation. This is our last point. Justice must be national. Verses 14 through 20. I'm going to read them very quickly. It says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I'm going to set a king over me, like the other nations have, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. In other words, a foreigner could not be king in Israel. "'You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only,' this is for the king, "'he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses,' Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now, I, 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 I want to address something here. This is not part of the message, but I want to just share this point with you because I think it's important, especially as we approach what is going to be elections, and you have decisions to make, and I have decisions to make that should be informed not from the newspaper or the internet, but from the of God. When it comes to the king of Israel, God says you need to watch their attitude when it comes to war, women, and wealth. War, women, and wealth. What's their attitude on war? In other words, they shouldn't be warmongers. They shouldn't look for an opportunity to stick their nose into every single conflict around the world. They should protect their home. Amen? The king should protect his kingdom. This is why God says they should not acquire many horses. You say, what's wrong with horses? No, understand that the horse was the main offensive weapon for battle in ancient times. So God is not saying, do not go to war to protect yourself. What he's saying is, is, I'm protecting your land. Don't go offensive. Stay home and protect your house. And not only is he saying, don't be a warmonger. Get as many horses as you can and go try to gain more land. What he's saying is, is, to whom will you go to acquire the horses? Well, the most important broker of horses at the time was Egypt. So now Israel, in order to acquire more horses so that they could be more offensive, which God told them not to do, would have to reestablish trade relations with Egypt to acquire these horses, which God also told them what to do. He says in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 2, do not go down to Egypt without inquiring of me first. We have to watch as a country, what kind of foreign policy we're talking about here. We have to watch when it comes to foreign policy because our country should come first and I want to know who stands to gain what. The reality of the matter is there's talk coming out right now that says, in regards to the expense that has been paid in the war between Russia and Ukraine, the United States have put, has put more military money in than Russia has. I'm not, I don't know if that's 100% true or not. But the reality of the matter is, everything has costs. It's costing you, it's costing me, And I don't want war around the world any more than anybody else does. Amen? I want our country to be led in a path that promotes and generates the most safety, not only militarily, but financially, for our people, for my children, and for my grandchildren. I want to know what a fire in Maui has to do with more money for the Ukraine. And it's not a difference between Israel and us. I know there's a contextual bridge that we have to cross, but listen to what the New Testament says. As many are as baptized in Christ Jesus are in Christ, whether Jew or Greek. So there are principles which apply to anyone and everyone all the time if they're in Christ. And we're in Christ, the principles of the Word of God should be guiding our life. We're not in Israel, but the principles do not become compromised because we're in America and not in Israel. Justice is still an expectation of God. And if justice is still an expectation of God, then we have to uphold justice. This isn't saying that we lose our ethnicity. It's saying that we must hold to the principles that are biblical before we hold to anything else because justice must be national. So not only is it an issue of war, it's also an issue of women. He shall not acquire many horses. That's war. The king shall also not acquire many wives. Should be a family man. The king should be interested in the success of the families in his nation. And thirdly, shall not acquire for him excessive silver and gold. I don't think it's an issue of silver and gold. I think it's an issue of excessive silver and gold. If every single thing the leader does somehow ends up lining his pocket, you've compromised justice in your nation. I think it's an accident that this verse just snuck in here. The tendency of leaders to act as if they're above the law is normal. This is routine. And therefore, God puts law when it comes to justice on a national level in his word so that the person who is in charge doesn't think he can go to war whenever he wants, can have whatever woman he wants, or have just as much wealth as he wants, because enough is never enough is never enough. When it comes to national justice, there's a handful of Proverbs that I want to share with you now. Proverbs 11.10, Proverbs 14.34, and Proverbs 28.16. They say this, Proverbs 11.10, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 28:16 A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor but he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. This is a relevant text today as relevant as it was in ancient times. And for example, here we are in the United States of America, a country with a mixed history, sure. We've had our ups and our downs, but nevertheless a strong history We have a strong military complex. We have a strong educational apparatus. But what we see today is a myriad of politicians on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the aisle, who are in declining mental and physical health. They're making multimillion-dollar decisions and waging wars, cultural wars, while the average age of the signer of the Declaration of Independence was 44. From the Journal of American Revolution, one article writes this, As it turns out, many founding fathers were less than 40 in 1776, with several qualifying as teenagers or 20-somethings. And though the average age of a signer of the Declaration of Independence was 44, more than a dozen of them were under 35. Of course, being older is not a curse. Just be clear about that. It's a blessing. The Bible is adamant about respect being paid to our older people. And we appreciate you and love you, older people. Justice requires wisdom, absolutely. And wisdom is often found in old age. Proverbs 20, verse 29 says that the glory of young men is their strength, but the glory of old men is their gray hair. They have wisdom. So this is important, but justice also needs vigor and vitality. Am I saying that justice cannot be done by older men and women? Absolutely not. Of course not. Justice can be done on a national scale by older men and older women, but we are facing something criminal right now. We are facing people who cannot walk on their own Speak on their own, answer questions. We have representatives who cannot even recover from strokes because political parties are so adamant about getting that one vote. Justice is not prejudice when it comes to age. Young people can be unjust. Old people can be unjust. Older people can be just. Younger people can be just. What I'm talking about is the intensity and the energy of the young lawlessness that is happening in our country being met with the same intensity and energy with justice. I don't see that happening. What I see happening right now is our country being run by a lot of old, tired politicians who are either hiding from the public or having strokes at the podium. We are obligated, yes, as Americans, but most importantly, as Christians who believe in the Word of God and the principles that are prescribed to us to empower those who will believe, who we believe will accomplish these ideas of justice because God is a God of justice and he wants to see justice occur. And this is important, church. The state does not inform our beliefs. Our beliefs inform how we involve ourselves in the state. And if we are entrusting the health and happiness, the joy and justice of our country to men and women who we wouldn't even hire to watch our cat What are we doing? What are we doing? The reality of the matter is we have faltered on so many premises. When it comes time to punish a criminal who is obviously a criminal, when it comes time to enforce the capital punishment principle that is shown In the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verse 6, or the book of Romans, chapter 13. We have people who are pro-abortion, who would kill an innocent baby in the womb of its mother, say it's so inhumane to practice capital punishment. I don't take lessons from you, lady. Inhumanity. There should be consequences for criminals, and there should be safety for babies. Not the other way around. We must live a life, we must represent a life, we must vote a life for justice, because God's judgment will come, and Peter says it will start in the house of God before it starts anywhere else. So my question for you today is this, when you act, when you think, when you speak, is it with a tone of justice? Fairness.